Today we're in part two of our Praying with Paul sermon series, where we're going through some of the prayers of Paul in the New Testament and using them to instruct us and inform us as to how we can and how we should be praying. Today we're going to talk a lot about love. In fact, the sermon's called Loving Others Enough to Pray. And isn't it interesting how, in many ways, love is a very universal concept? I think if you go back through history and you look at songs, popular songs, uh, poetry, you look at art and drama, you're going to see, I would guess, more than any other theme, you're going to see the theme of love over and over again. Now, not always dealt with appropriately or well, but you see it often. Why? Why does love come up so much in art? In fact, if you look at history and you look at movements of history, you'll often see love as a part of those movements, relationships that were born, relationships that were ripped apart. Why? Why is love such a universal concept, not just in our culture, because love crosses many different cultures. I think every culture has some concept of love. I believe love crosses generations. Every generation has some concept, some important value that it puts upon love. Why? I'll give you the simple answer. God made us that way. God made us to love. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? This Bible scholar was saying, Jesus, give me the details that I need to know so that all my ducks are in a row, my outline really works out well of the Old Testament so I can say, I know this is right. Tell me what the greatest commandment is and what did did Jesus say? Love God and love others. Specifically, Matthew 22, 37 through 40, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love others. These are the two most important things in our life. And they go together. We have to first and foremost love God which means we have to understand we were made for this relationship with him, that we fell away from that, that he loved us enough to send his son to die for us, that we can be restored to that relationship. And there is the springboard of our love for him. We love because he first loved us. It defines who we are and how we live. But then the second has to come in there. We can't just say, well, I love God, but you know these people really annoy me. We have to say, as Scripture says, if we love God, we absolutely must love others. Because if we're not loving others, then we can't say we love God. We're not actually loving God. And if we say we love others, but we're not actually loving God, we don't know if the love that we have for them is a real love, a true love, a helpful love, a self-sacrificing love, or if it's just some figment of our imagination that we've made up. So these two things go intimately together, loving God and loving others. And this theme of love, especially loving others, comes up again and again and again in Paul's prayers. Last week in Sunday school, we did an overview and I divided up the different prayers of Paul among groups in the Sunday school class and had them make a list. And the theme of praying that people would love each other more came up over and over and over again. Now, last week, we looked at the foundations of prayer. What is the truth upon which Paul is basing his prayers? The truth that Jesus Christ has died to save us. So when he's praying for the Thessalonians, he's saying, you have faith in Christ, you have been saved by him. That's God's past work. 
He prays based on God's present work in their life. Christ is shaping them, changing them from the inside out. God loves us just the way we are. It's an important truth for us to understand. Sinful as we are, messed up as we are, God loves us exactly the way we are. But God loves us too much to leave us that way. So God is at work in our heart. That's the present work that Paul bases his prayers on. And then he talks about this future work. Christ is coming back. And because Christ is coming back, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, we have a perspective. And so when we pray, we're not just praying, God, help this person during this difficult time now. It's help them to trust in the fact that Christ is coming back. Give them that bigger perspective on what they're going through. It enlarges our perspective on prayer. And that really, those three things, the foundation of God's past work of grace, present work of grace, and future work of grace, become the the foundation for why we are to love God. But then we can't just stop there. We have to say, okay, now how do I love others because that is true? Paul loved God. When you read the letters of Paul to people, you see a man who is absolutely saturated with the gospel of God's grace, to use our theme from the previous sermon series, who is saturated with a a knowledge of God, but also a heartfelt love for God. He did what he did because he knew what God had done for him, and he was driven by his love for God, to bring glory to God, to be used by God. But because of that, and because he knew what God had done in Jesus Christ, He therefore looked around him and he said, these people need Jesus. I'm going to uproot my life. I'm going to travel great distances. I'm going to go through great persecution because those people that need Jesus are loved by God. I know that because I love God and therefore I love those people. So Paul was motivated by an incredible and immense love for the people that he served. And you're going to see that in the prayer that we're going to look at this morning. And you can see it in Paul's life. He traveled great distances. He wrote letters to these people to instruct them and tell them that they were on his mind and his heart, that he was praying for them. He wanted them to grow because he loved them. He served them and he even suffered. So open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians at the end of chapter 2, starting in verse 17. We're going to walk through 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 17 through uh, the end of chapter 3. Not all of it is the prayer, but it forms the context for the prayer that we need to look at. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. And as always, if you really don't have a Bible, just take ours. We would love to get that in your hands and have you know more about the love that Christ has for you as you read his word. And as we walk through this sermon, I want you to keep in mind two key issues. All right, so file these away or jot them down. I'm sorry, I didn't put notes in again this week. Uh, But jot them somewhere in the bulletin. I think the back is pretty blank. Two key things I want us to think about. How should we really love those that we already love? How should we really love those that we already love? And what I mean by that is, in general, there are people in our lives that I think we love. Husband, wife, son, daughter, parents relationships that we have. And we know, I love these people. Maybe it's a friend, somebody in the church. I know I love these people. And we want to love them better. At least I hope we do. 
We want to truly love them. We want to, in love, do what's best for them. So what does that look like? And you're going to see that in the prayer this morning. So how do we really love, or maybe another way to say it is better love, those that we already love? Right. So that's one thing I want us to watch for. The second thing I want us to watch for is how do we learn to love those we should love? How do we learn to love those that we should love, but maybe we don't? Or we need to think about the fact that we should love these people. So those are the two things. How do we really love those we already love? And how do we learn to love those we should love? So let's dig into the text. And the first thing we're going to see is really the theme of the service. Why does Paul love these people? Or how do we know Paul loves these people? So we're going to start in verse 17. And we're going to go down through uh, chapter 3, verse 8. So it's a long passage. We'll split it up. Let's just start in verses 17 through 20. But, brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes, is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Look at the words that Paul uses to describe his love for the Thessalonians. He uses this phrase, when we were orphaned by being separated from you. And we talked a little bit about the history surrounding the two letters to the Thessalonians. But if you weren't here, I'll I'll catch you up. Paul had visited the city of Thessalonica. And as was his uh, pattern when he visited a city, he would go in and he would preach or teach in the synagogue on the Sabbath. So those would be uh, the Jewish people that already had a background in the Old Testament, and he would share the gospel with them. And then he would, from that, see where it would bear fruit, and he would start meeting with those people and teaching them the gospel, and he would disciple them, and he would stay with them over and over, or for as long as he could, to teach them, because he had a heart for them to grow more and more. But what happened in Thessalonica was different. He was there for three weeks, and then the city was kind of torn in two. A a riot started, people saying, this guy's coming in and preaching something we don't agree with, and they chased Paul out of the city. So he had to flee. Now you have to understand Paul's heart for ministry. He wanted people to not just know the gospel. He didn't go in and just notch his belt. Oh, this many people converted to Jesus Christ. Great, on to the next city. He thought about those people and he prayed for them saying, are they growing? He knew that the Thessalonians were left in a city that were, was not uh, accepting of the gospel was not supportive of their newfound faith because they had chased him out. Not only had they chased him out of Thessalonica, but they had gone to Berea, which is where he went to and was now ministering, and they chased him out of there as well. These people were really devoted. And that's the situation in which he has left these baby Christians. And in his heart, he's been ripped away from people that he loves. And I imagine, based on the words that he's using here, being orphaned from them, I imagine that every day since Paul had to leave there, he was in anguish. God, what's happening to them? Is their faith surviving? Are they truly holding on to Jesus? Are they giving into their culture? What is going on? He's just in anguish, like a parent being ripped away from their child, or vice versa. That's the love that he had for them. 
At the bottom of the passage, verses 19 and 20, he talks about the hope that he has in them, the joy. They are his joy, his crown, his glory. That's how much he appreciated them and loved them. Paul absolutely loves the Thessalonians. He had a heart for people. And at this point, I want to ask us, and I think we need to ask ourselves, do we love each other that way? Do we truly love another brother and sister in Christ this way? That we are so concerned if they are growing in their faith. That we are thinking about them, praying for them, agonizing over them when they're going through difficult times that are challenging them. Looking forward to those times we can get back together with them to support them and encourage them. Paul loved the Thessalonians. And because he loved them, he wants what's best for them. Now, that's pretty obvious. If you love someone, you're going to want what's best for them. For Paul, what is best is always defined by God's word. So let's look at verses 1 through 5. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who was our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we, were, we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when we could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. So Paul ends up in the city of Athens, and he is in such anguish and concern over the Thessalonians that he takes his traveling partner, Timothy, and he sends him back. He says, go there. Now, this is kind of like the Lone Ranger sending Tonto into town, right? This is a tough place. And I imagine as as Timothy, I, I wonder if he thought, really, Paul, I have to go back there? I mean, they just ran us out of town. And he says, no, you have to go. You have to go back there. You need to find out about their faith. You need to teach them. And then you need to come back because I'm in such agony. I must know what is going on. And so he has found out from Timothy that they are indeed continuing in their faith. And he longs to go to them, to instruct them, to enrich them. So much so that because he couldn't go, he sent Timothy so that they would continue in their relationship with Jesus Christ because that is what is best for them. Because he knows them and loves them and wants what's best for them, he wants to point them to Christ. That's his greatest goal in his relationship with them is to point them further in their relationship with Jesus Christ. So again, I think we need to ask ourselves, If knowing Christ and growing in a relationship with him truly is the most important thing in the world for anybody, do we pray for that for each other? I hope we pray that for non-Christians, that they would come to know Christ, that they would know the joy and the salvation that is in Christ. I hope we do. But do we stop there? Or do we continue to pray for our Christian brothers and sisters? May they grow stronger in their faith. May they go further in their relationship with God. Do we agonize over that for one another? Because that's a sign that we love them. Then in verses 6 through 8, because Paul loves them and wants what's best for them, Paul has great joy because of their faith. Look at verses 6 through 8. But Timothy has just now come to us. So Timothy's come back from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us, that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? So Paul is so concerned about them that he is overjoyed when he hears news. Because he knows two things. He knows, number one, that the one that came and shared the gospel with them, Paul, has been run out of town. And they might have looked at that and said, well, really, if Jesus was all that powerful, why did Paul have to run away? And so he's worried that his persecution might affect their faith. But the other thing is he knows they're in a tough city. So he's worried that their persecution might affect their faith. And we can see a glimpse of his anguish in verse 8. Look at how he says this. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. I believe in many ways that Paul, from the moment he left until the moment Timothy returned and gave news, Paul was dying every day. He was just feeling overwhelmed with concern about these people that he had to leave behind. And now that he has heard that they are standing firm in his faith, he says, or in their faith, for now we really live. It's like life has returned to him. Joy has returned to him. What a deep love that he had for these people. Why does Paul love the Thessalonians this way? Why does he care so much about people he barely spent a few weeks with that he had never previously met and might not ever previously or, or after that meet again? Why does he love them so much? Do you know why? Because Paul understood something. That's how he is loved by Jesus Christ. And that's how we are loved by Jesus Christ. John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. And he doesn't leave that for us to guess. He says, as I have loved you, so love one another. That's a high standard. That's better than just a handshake on a Sunday morning. That's better than just an email here and there saying, hey, hope you're doing okay. It goes beyond that to say, I am praying for the greatest need in your life that you would grow in Jesus Christ. I am rejoicing over what God is doing in your heart. I'm getting together with you to find out what God is doing in your life. And then I'm praying for you for that specifically. Because when Jesus saw our sin, when he saw our greatest need, he didn't just look down from heaven and go, you know what, I'll just send him a care package. You know, just tie it, tie it up with a nice bow. Maybe put some nice thoughts in there, a few quips and quotes, and this will really change their day, and this will set it out. This will make them okay, because I love them. Did he do that? What did Jesus do when he saw us in our greatest need? He left the glories of heaven. He came and lived among us. He suffered with us. He took our sin upon himself and died in our place to serve us in a way we could never accomplish for ourselves. And then he rose from the grave, promising eternal life for all who believe. He did this out of love. Because Christ's love is much more than just sentimentality. Christ's love shows itself in sacrifice. And that shaped Paul's love for others. And it needs to shape our love for others as well. Paul loves the Thessalonians this way because he knows he and they are loved by Christ this way. And then that knowledge of what is true infuses his prayers. 
And it needs to do the same with us. So this love now that he has for them leads him to pray. Because he truly loves them, he's going to pray for that which is most important. So let's look at the prayer now that he's going to pray for the Thessalonians. Let's look at verses 9 through 13. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. The first thing that we see is that Paul's prayer is motivated by his thankfulness. A lot of times our prayer, and it's okay to pray this way, our prayer is motivated by need. I have a need, so I'm going to pray for it. You have a need, I'm going to pray for you. And that's good. But it's not good enough. We don't want to just stop there. We need to go deeper and say, okay, I'm going to pray for you, but I know some things about you. Even if I don't know anything else that's going on in your life. If you're a Christian, I know Jesus died in your place. I know he's presently at work in your life. These are those foundations of prayer we talked about last week. So if I know these things, I know Jesus is coming back. You're going to spend eternity with him. Can I not then pray with thanksgiving, declaring these things to be true? So often we get into our needs. We go, oh, God, help me or help this person. Their life is falling apart and it's so awful and it's really difficult. And that may be true. And we need to pray for those people. But what if we started by saying, God, you died for this person. You saved them. You're at work in their life. You're coming back to take them home. And right now, they're going through a tough time. Think of the difference in the perspective that makes. That praying through the truth of these foundations. And so Paul starts with thankfulness because he is so thankful for the Thessalonians. And most importantly, verse 9, how can we thank God enough for you? You see, Paul is praying for them and he's saying, I'm thankful. Now, as the Thessalonians, imagine how you hear that. This is kind of a good pat on the back. And I mean that in a good way. This is Paul saying, I'm really thankful for you because you're doing well. You're continuing in your faith. This would be encouraging to them. But Paul doesn't just stop there. He's not only encouraging them. He's giving God all the glory. He's not saying to them, Thessalonians, I'm thankful to you for what you're doing. He's saying, I'm thankful to God for what he's doing. Do you see the difference? If I say I'm thankful to you for what you're doing, who gets the credit for what you're doing? Well, you do. And that might be okay. You might be doing a good job, and that's great. But if I say I'm thankful to God for what he's doing through you, you can be encouraged about what you're doing, but you're also pointed to God to remember that he's the one that is in control and is sovereign. God gets the credit. And then look at how he phrases this. This just blew me away. He says, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Think about what Paul is saying. Here he is in another city. And he's saying, because I have just heard that these people I love so much are sincere in their faith, truly following Christ, really living for Jesus Christ, I am thankful that I have joy. My goodness, Paul, that is so selfish of you, isn't it? He's just thinking about himself here. 
No, not at all. Paul gives God all the credit. He realizes it's only through Jesus Christ that this is happening. But because he loves these people and wants what's best for them, when he hears that that's exactly what's happening, he has joy. Sometimes I think we hear news from somebody else in a way that God is blessing them or or strengthening them or challenging them or growing them. And we go, man, I wish you'd do that for me. And we lose the opportunity to say, man, I have joy that God is doing that in your heart. I love it when people come to me and share ways that God is, is strengthening them and challenging them and growing them or ways that they've seen God at work. I have joy in my ministry when I hear about what God is doing in your life. Not because I get to take credit, but because God gets all the credit and I just get to be a part of it. Sometimes an active part, sometimes just a spectator. But either way, I get joy that God is at work. Do we have that same joy when God works in each other? I hope we do. There's a lot of joy to be had there. So Paul is overjoyed. And he gives God God all the credit for it. And then verses 10 through 11, Paul prays for an opportunity to serve them. Now this is interesting. Paul does recognize that the Thessalonians still have a need. The whole point of the, the book of 1 Thessalonians, the letter of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, is that Paul knew there were some things about their faith that were either immature or a little off. They were veering off course just a little bit in some ways, and he wrote to instruct them. It would have been easy from a distance for Paul to say, hey, there's some things you need to know. Hey, uh, I'm going to send you this letter. Just think about it, pray about it. Get back to me. Let me know what you think. I hope you're doing okay. He could have done that all from a distance. Paul could have prayed, God, help them. May you just use this letter. He could have even prayed, God, send them somebody else. You know, I'm on to my really next really important thing on my agenda, and I just pray you would send somebody to go back to them. But instead, Paul prays what? That God would make a way for him to go back. Think about that. This city that put his life in danger and ran him out of town, he's praying that God would clear a way that he could go back and be with these people to teach them and instruct them and help them in what is best for them. That's amazing. Prayer is a dangerous thing. It should be. Because we should be praying that God would use us. And when God uses us, that doesn't put us in the nicest, easiest places. There was a news story this week about a volunteer, a Christian volunteer at a ministry downtown Rochester. Did you hear about this? A woman by the name of, got it here, Brianna, was walking to a ministry called 411 Ministries on Parcells Avenue to serve lunch to the kids. It's a Christian organization, and, and every day, I believe, they serve lunch to the neighborhood kids. They've been doing it for a number of years, opening up their doors, reaching out to the community. And as this volunteer, brand-new volunteer, was walking in to serve lunch, she was hit by a stray bullet. She's fine, but it entered her arm, and they had to shut down the ministry for a while. They interviewed her on the news, and do you know what she said? I'm looking forward to going back. Amen? Now, why? Because she knew she was where God wanted her to be, showing love to other people and serving them for the cause of the gospel. People often say, well, isn't that dangerous? Well, yes, it is. God doesn't call us to safety and ease. He calls us to step out in faith for him. There's a few things about that story that you may not know, and that's your connection with that story. 
I told you a while ago that as a church, we're partnering with other churches in the Rochester area to plant a church. Do you remember what neighborhood I said we were going to plant a church in? Beachwood. We've identified that as the place that we're going to plant. Not only that, but in our conversations with these churches, we've identified a church planter that is already at work in that neighborhood, has been building relationships in that neighborhood. Do you know what that person's name is? Chris Holdrich. And if you read the news, he is the leader of 441 Ministries. That is the ministry that we are partnering with to plant this church. And I'm going to be talking to you in the years to come and say, hey, we need teams to go down there and help this church. And you're going to remember the news story about the woman hit by a stray bullet. And you're going to have to ask yourself, am I willing to pray that God would send me? It's not easy. It wasn't easy for Paul. It doesn't always work out the way we want. This team going to Nicaragua, it's not easy. And we take precautions. We're careful. But you know, stepping outside of your house every day is not safe. Frankly, for some of you, being inside your house may not be all that safe either. I don't know. God doesn't call us to safety. He calls us to live for his glory. And that's a huge act of trust. And so Paul is willing to pray that God would open an opportunity for him to serve. And then in verse 12, he prays for an overflow of love in the church and from the church. He says, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. Paul says, the greatest evidence of the gospel is the love that we have among one another. We have this inward truth that we've accepted, that Jesus has died for us, that he rose from the grave. It's this truth that we cling on to, and it's this inward thing. It can be very private, very personal, but it can't stay there because then it shapes a community. A community of people, we call them Christians, and and we call the community the church, they get together because we have this thing in common. It's drawn us together. And the thing within the relationships of the church that is the greatest display of the gospel of Jesus Christ is love. And how amazing that I think it is the thing that has been the most common from every generation and every culture that there has ever been, this huge emphasis on love. And God has chosen to say, I'm going to use you to demonstrate my love to the world. Now, it's tempting to take that as Christians and say, oh, I'm praying for love in our church, or I'm praying for love for this person, and to say, well, well, we just need to love them. It doesn't matter what they're going through. It doesn't matter what they're struggling with. It doesn't matter what they believe. It doesn't matter that they're different. We just need to love them. In Scripture, love is shaped by truth, always. It has to be. Because the context of this prayer that they would grow in love is the instructions of Paul that surround this prayer to teach them about Jesus Christ, to challenge them in ways that they are going off course. Love must be shaped by truth. Love that is separated by truth is not love at all. It's something else, often something dangerous. So love must be shaped by truth, but truth must be expressed in love. It's good to stand up for the truth. It's good to stand up for doctrine. We have to do it. But there's a danger, I think, among Christians today that we can be so caught up in saying we're standing up for truth that we forget that that truth is being applied to people for whom Christ died 
and for whom Christ loves. People that we are called to love. Sometimes, in our effort to defend the word of God as being the sole authority of truth and to say this is what is true and I'm going to be submissive to everything that God has written, we accidentally grab handfuls of it and rip it out and throw it away because we fail to love. And all over this authoritative book that we claim is so important for us is the command, you must love one another. So we can't fight for truth without love. I want to apply this to one specific area. Because I'm worried. My wife and I have been talking a lot about this lately. I love technology. I really do. But technology has a tendency to separate us a few steps from people. And that's okay because sometimes we're separated from people with distance or whatever it is. And technology is a great way to keep up to date with somebody. But it has a side effect that we need to be aware of. Because in our interactions through technology with people, because we're removed from them, instead of responding or interacting with the person, we start interacting with the words on the screen or the picture on the screen. And we forget that on the other side of our monitor, there's wires and they connect to somebody else's monitor. And on the other side of that monitor, there's a living human being for whom Jesus Christ died. And so we, we rip off something and we say, oh, I'm standing for truth. And the other person goes, I'm crushed. And they're hurt. If it's not loving, it's not truthful, according to God's word. Now, I want to apply this in this way. We're coming up on an election time. God help us. I want us as a church, I'm going to call upon you to make a commitment to say that you will not post anything online that is unloving about any candidate. Because as much as we want to stand, and I believe you can post things that point out if somebody's in error. We can post things that show what somebody believes. It's all fine. But if we cannot look at what we have posted, what we have linked to, the article, the tone of the article, the truth of the article, if we can't look at it and say, this is loving toward that person, even though I disagree with them, this is loving, then as a Christian, I'm calling upon you, don't do it. How many of you are willing to make that commitment today? Okay, I know that's hard. These are real people, guys. We are called to love real people. And I believe as a church, if that would not only infuse our Facebook posts, but also our our conversations, that people would come in and say, that person really disagrees with that public official, but man, you should have heard the way they talked about them. It was in love, and they're praying for them, and they, they want the gospel to go out. They want God's glory. Man, it was just so beautiful the way they talked about them an opportunity for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Finally, verse 13. Paul prays that they would be holy and blameless. And not just holy and blameless, but that they would be strong enough from God to be holy and blameless. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. What is holiness? Holiness is living with a conscious choice that Jesus is better than everything else the world has to offer and then making decisions based on that. That's what holiness is. It's a strong heart devoted to Jesus Christ. 
that is able to walk through the world saying no to the lesser things of this world and the sinful offerings that are less than what God has because we believe that we have something so far greater in Jesus Christ. That's what holiness is. Holiness is not giving up a bunch of good things and just suffering through it. It's saying compared to Jesus, that's nothing. I don't need that. I don't even want that anymore. I want Jesus. There's a quote from John Piper I came across. He said, since I will inherit the whole the whole world, I don't need any of it now. That's a great truth. Since I will inherit the, the whole world, I don't need any of it now. What we have in Christ is so far greater than the lies that are offered to us on a constant day-to-day basis. And the call to personal holiness is to look at everything through the lens of Jesus Christ and say, I don't need that. I have something so far better. There's an old African-American hymn it's called Give Me Jesus. You might have heard it. It was most recently popular, uh, most recently by um, Jeremy Camp, I think before that by Fernando Ortega. It says this. Here's the, the chorus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And then the verses go through. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. When I am alone, give me Jesus. When I come to die, give me Jesus. No matter what life brings, give me Jesus. Jesus. Paul loves these people so much that he prays for them, that they would be able to look at the world around them and say it is worthless compared to Jesus Christ. Holiness is hard. We need God's strength to make decisions like that on a day-to-day basis. And so that's what Paul prays for, a lasting holiness that would endure not just for a day, not just for a moment, not just after a retreat or a Sunday, but would endure until Jesus Christ returns. So here's what Paul prays for. He prays out of thankfulness and joy in Christ's work. He prays that he would be able to serve them. He prays that they would overflow with love among them, and he prays that they would be holy and blameless. Where did Paul learn to pray this way? Jesus Christ. And not just the words of Jesus, the very life and action of Jesus. Hebrews 12.2 says that Christ endured the cross, the greatest service to us, for the joy set before him. He said, I love you. I want what's best for you, so I'm going to die for you. And so Paul lived his life this way. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do we truly and properly love those that we say we love. Because if we do, we need to go deeper in our prayers for one another and for those people. It's good to pray for help day to day. It's good to pray for healing. It's good to pray for new jobs or help with difficult situations. It's good. But let's go deeper. and Let's pray for Christ's work in that person. Let's pray for the overflowing work of, of Christ in somebody's life, that they would love those around them. Let's pray that God would give us opportunities to be used by him in their life. And then loving those that we should love but don't. Let's look at them through the eyes of Jesus. And then let's pray. Let's look at them as somebody for whom that is made in the image of Christ and can be saved by Jesus Christ. Let's look at them that way. And let's run all of our conversations and all of our comments about them through that grid. And instead of clicking the keyboards or or shouting out some funny joke about them that demeans them and demeans the image of God in which they were created, let's get on our knees and pray for them. 
as hopefully we are doing for one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, teach us to love each other the way you have loved us. And I pray that knowing it is a huge prayer. I pray that knowing we will always, this side of heaven, fall short. And yet I pray that knowing it is what you call us to. And only you, through the power of your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in those who believe, and only through the power of the gospel that saves us, can that even be possible. And I pray that knowing that the world desperately needs to see this. Us loving each other the way you have loved us. May it infuse our prayers. May it drive us to pray. May we truly love one another by praying for that which is most important. Out of love, praying that we would grow in you and then grow in our love for each other. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.